To Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. While you're turning there, I do want to give a, a, a heartfelt thank you uh, to the church here at The Rock for uh, your support to, to Sozo Ministry, the Sozo Student Center in Rona Park. Um, not only uh, were you guys able to contribute financially, um, but many of you um, have come and volunteered your time um, washing windows. Um, installing sinks, hanging TVs. Um, it's just been an incredible blessing for us, uh, kind of the little brother um, down in Roner Park to you guys. It was a, a true encouragement. Um, one of the things that we, uh, one of the privileges that I get to have is I get to learn new, world, new words uh, from the youth culture. And so um, I will just say that if they were here, they would thank you. Uh, by saying that you're slapping, straight gas, no cap. <laughs> I figure if I use it more and more, they'll stop using it. So, <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Verse 1. It says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we're so grateful for your word that encourages us. Lord, when we're downtrodden, when we're discouraged, Lord, when we're happy, when we're at the peak, Lord, your word encourages us to keep running. Lord, our life is not our own, but it belongs to you. And so, Lord, we offer it to you this morning and ask that you would speak to us now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was a Saturday morning, and John, who was an avid hunter, woke up early and was ready to bag his first deer. And as he was coming down the steps, he saw sitting there at the table his wife, all geared up and ready to go hunting with him. And she had never done this before, so he just simply asked her, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm going to go hunting with you. And after some consideration and much reluctance, John finally gave in and said, okay, you can come along. And so they arrive at the hunting site, and he gets her all set up with the deer blind and gives her instructions that when you see a deer uh, that walks in, then you shoot it. Um, and then when I hear the gunshots, I will come back and we'll go from there. And so he starts to walk away, just kind of smiling and thinking to himself, there is no way she's going to catch a deer. 
And about 10 minutes down the road, he hears the gunshots. Blam, blam. And he thinks, wow, already she got a deer. And so he starts walking back. And as he draws closer, he starts to hear yelling and shouting. And there's this big commotion going on. And he hears another set of gunfire. Blam, blam. And this has got him concerned. So he rushes into the, the opening there. And there he sees a cowboy with his hands up like this saying, okay, okay, lady, you can have the deer. Just let me get the saddle off of it. <laughs> Now, I am a big proponent of doing activities with your spouse. I love hanging out with my wife. We enjoy being together. We always have. And I remember when we were first starting to date, my wife enjoyed running. She enjoyed jogging. And I remember the first time that we went jogging together. And now let me remind you that I, I don't like running. I, I hate running. Uh, I played high school basketball and high school football, so I ran a lot, but I just never ran for no reason. Uh, there was a, always a, a purpose for running, uh, playing sports, and so I, th- th- there's no such thing as a fun run um, in, my, in my vocabulary, but she enjoyed it, and so wanting to you know, indulged her. We went on our first run together, and I realized pretty quickly into the jog that I was not as in shape as I was in high school, and so I became winded pretty early on. She, on the other hand, seemed to have no problem running, and so I had determined that I was not going to be the first one to start walking. Now, this wasn't a race, but it was definitely a competition. That day, I kept my manhood intact. <laughs> she, be, she was the first one that started to walk, but the reality of it is, is I couldn't have this continue. And so being the godly man that I am, I turned her to Proverbs 28.1, which states the wicked run when no one is chasing them. She's very fortunate to have a godly husband like myself. (laughs) The writer of Hebrews likens the Christian life to running a race. And it's a profound analogy that speaks to the reality that you and I go through in our Christian walk. The writer of Hebrews says to run the race. And the first point that I want to note is at the end of verse 1 where the writer says to run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. And this is the first point, is that each one of us has a race that is set before us. Now, corporately, we are all in one race. We're all called to abide in Jesus. We're all called to know his word. We're all called to be led by his spirit and to be filled with his spirit. But individually, we also have our own specific races that we belong to, that we're a part of. And the writer of Hebrews says that we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. The writer of Hebrews says that we can't be, particip- or that we can't be spectators, but that we are to be participants in it. In just about four months, the biggest 
worldwide sports spectacle is going to take place in the Summer Olympics there in Tokyo. Now, how many have been training and how many will be going to Tokyo to run in the Olympics? No one. Why? Because none of us are good enough. And so we send those that are our best, we send those to represent the United States of America. But that gives us the freedom to sit on the couch and root them on. The writer of Hebrews gives us no such convenience. When he says our Christian faith, our Christian walk, our Christian life, there's a race that is set before you. And we are to run to win. And so the first point is that the writer of Hebrews says that we have a race set before us. And there are some here this morning that would say you're spiritually lethargic. Where the idea of spiritually running a race, it just tires you out just thinking of it. And so you have sat on the couch, so to speak. You have put away your spiritual running shoes and they've been collecting dust. There are others in this room that you're tired. You're in the middle of your own race and you're hitting the wall and you're hitting a hill and you feel like you're just giving up and it's just putting one foot in front of the other. And the writer of Hebrews encourages us here and says to keep going. There are some of us that we're at the start. The fanfare, the gunshot, the excitement of starting this race. You're a new believer and you're running and everything just seems so much uh, you know, greater. You're the word, it's just coming to life and you're like, I never knew that was in the, the word of God and everything's exciting. And the writer of Hebrews says, just wait. <laughs> then there are some of us that are just cruising right along. And the writer of Hebrews encourages us, but we all have our race. It's set out before us. We all have our course. In Hebrews 11, it starts with the well-known and often quoted verse, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on and just shows us story after story of men and women who live Lives of extraordinary faith. And then he turns his attention to us. And he says, now you run. The writer of Hebrews likens the Christian life to running a race. And he says that there are things that as we run that will hinder us. Again, there in verse 1, is, he tells us to let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And he makes a distinction between weight and sin. Most of us understand the concept of sin being a burden, that sin is something that entangles us, that sin is something that would trip us up and make it difficult for us to run uh, the Christian race. But then he adds this, this other component Something called weights. And in the Greek, what it's referring to is something that encircles you and captures you. When my kids were young, my boys, as they were growing up, they always wanted to wrestle dad. Uh, now my 14-year-old is about as big as me, so we stopped that. Um, 
<laughs> Though he knows I can still take him. But when they were little, as we, were, we would wrestle, I often would take a blanket and I would wrap them up in the blanket and I would tackle them to the ground. And you know what happens underneath a blanket? You start to suffocate. So I wait until, you know, they're like, ah, you know, and then all of a sudden they go, dad, I can't breathe. Then I take off the blanket. (laughs) Weights in our life don't take off the blanket. It's meant to suffocate us so that we can't run. And so the writer of Hebrews says, Lay those aside. What is a weight? It's anything that doesn't propel you, that doesn't propel me forward in my walk with Christ. That could be a relationship that in and of themselves might be harmless, but you know it's keeping you back. It might be uh, a ton of other things that aren't necessarily sin, but are holding you, holding me back. Paul would write, and he said, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are expedient. Not everything in in my life propels me forward in a relationship with Christ. And the writer of Hebrews tells us to lay it aside. I don't know if Ross remembers this, but when we were at Calvary Chapel, Petaluma, that's right before my wife and I got married and we were planning on getting married and the pastor of the church, I don't remember the sermon, so to speak, but he, he, it was a call to repentance. It was a call to repentance for sin and they didn't normally do this, but they had the pastors and, and the elders come forward and allow people to get prayer. And I had been carrying a sin for quite a while. And I was involved in junior high ministry, so I thought, I can't let anybody know this. And I carried it, and I carried it, and I carried it. And that Sunday, I felt like the Lord said, lay it aside. And so I looked up, and I looked at everyone that was up there. And I was like, I think Ross can understand. And so I I went up to Ross, and I told him, and he prayed with me, and I laid it aside. Writer of Hebrews says, whatever it is, lay it aside. The writer of Hebrews likens the Christian life to a running a race, and he says to run with endurance. The Greek word there for endurance means hupomone. Uh, it, it means keep yourself under the suffering, which I think is a great way to describe running. There's, they say there's eight stages in running a marathon. Now, I, I've never run a marathon. I think we covered why. But these, there's eight stages. The first stage is excitement. That's where the gun goes off and there's the fanfare and everyone's excited and you just are, oh, it's a beautiful day. I can't believe I'm here. And there's just this glorious you know, energy and you start off the race. Then the second stage is Denial. That's where you say, you know, I, I might be a little behind. I might be a little off pace, but, but I'm, I'm still in it. I'm still in it. I don't need water yet, and, and I think I'm still good. Look, here comes the hill. <laughs> then the third stage is shock. 
where you say, oh, I'm not even halfway through yet. And what is this course just full of hills? The fourth stage is isolation where, you, you know, as the race kind of lengthens out, you look around and there's no one around you. And you ask yourself, where is everyone? Then you start wondering, did I take the wrong turn? Am I off course? And you're not left with anything except your own inward demons asking you, why did you sign up for this? <laughs> the fifth stage is despair. This is where you say, I am going to die. Why did I sign up for this? And you say, well, at least I haven't hit the wall yet. And then comes the sixth stage, the wall. <laughs> I'm so tired. This is the most tired I've ever been in my life. I'm so tired. My teeth hurt. <laughs> and why are all these jerks passing me? Then comes the seventh stage, the second wind. And that's where you say, no, I, I've, I'm going to grind it out. I'm going to push through. And then the final stage, the final stage is elation. I did it. I finished the race. And when I saw this, I thought, yep, I've experienced that. Yep, that sounds familiar. Yep, I know that feeling and that one and that one, even though I've never run a marathon. Because I've run a spiritual race. And I've experienced the excitement. I've experienced the denial. I've experienced the shock. I've experienced the isolation. I've experienced the despair. I've experienced the wall. I've experienced the second wind. I've experienced the elation. The writer of Hebrews likens our Christian walk to a race. The, Bo the Boston Marathon is one of the most uh, famous marathons in the world, if not the most famous. And there's one particular feature that's called Heartbreak Hill. And on this course, it's not the steepness of the hill that's an issue. It's where it's located. They say that around mile 20 in the 26-mile marathon, that's when you hit the wall. Well, Heartbreak Hill is mile 20. And so it's not the steepness of the hill, but it's where it takes place. This is where you really have to grind it out. It's the point that if you were ever going to quit, this would be the time that you would quit. And so a journalist who had covered the race multiple times, he would normally cover it from the, the beginning, from the, from the fanfare, from the excitement. But one year he decided to go up to Heartbreak Hill where there's just a, a crowd that gathers to cheer on the marathon runners because they know it's the most difficult place. And so he went there and just randomly, as he's shouting out to a woman, he yells, heartbreak is behind you now. To which the woman stopped and came over to him and with tears streaming down her face, just gave him a hug and said, thank you. Since then, every year he goes up and he holds up a sign with the same slogan, heartbreak is behind you now. And the sign has been hugged, the sign has been kissed, the sign has been selfied with. And it's a phenomenon that's understandable. Long endurance races are difficult. 
Our Christian walk is compared to a race that requires endurance. The writer of Hebrews points us to two inspirations, two crowds of cheering, so to speak. The first one is there again in verse 1. He says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The first inspiration Paul tells, or not Paul, I think it's Paul, but I, you know, there's debate. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that it's the cloud of witnesses. In chapter 11, men and women whose lives inspire us. But I add my own, like Caleb. When Moses sent out the 12 spies, they come out of Egypt and God's calling them to go into the promised land. Moses sends out 12 spies into the promised land and 10 come back. And the 10, 10 come back and say, look, we can't do it. There are giants in the land. They'll crush us. There's no possible way that we can go into the promised land. But two, Joshua and Caleb, they both came back and they said, no, we can do it. There's giants in the land, but he, Caleb said the giants are like bread. And so the 10 overpowered Joshua and Caleb and the people decided, no, we can't go into the promised land. And so God said, okay, then you can't go into the promised land. For 40 years, they wandered around in the wilderness. And anyone over the age of 20 did not enter into the promised land except two people, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua was leading the nation into the promised land. But you have to think about Caleb. Because Caleb was wandering around in the wilderness, and every day he woke up and was fed manna. And he just, I could just imagine him thinking and just going, we could have been in the promised land. Could have had milk and honey. And for 45 years, Caleb endured a race. When they come into the promised land in Joshua... They, they, you know, the battle of Jericho, they win and they have some major victories. But in Joshua chapter 11, the time comes to send the tribes out and then drive out these little pockets of resistance, these little pockets of the enemy. And every single time you read about that, you find out that they didn't fully drive out the enemy. In fact, the judges opens and the next book opens with this saying that they did not fully drive out the enemy. But there was one family that did, Caleb. Caleb comes to Joshua and he says, look, now that it's time for us to disperse, I want what God promised me. I want Mount Hebron. Now, Mount Hebron was full of giants. They were full of what they called Anakim. Goliath came from this tribe of Anakim. And so you have giants that own this mountain. Now, if you don't know anything about warfare, uh, there's this phrase, you want to have the higher ground. And so there they are. They are circling the mountain, and Caleb goes, my strength that is in me is the same today as it was when I was 40. He was 85 years old. 
And he said, Joshua, give me my mountain. And he runs up and he takes his mountain and he drives out the Anakim. He drives out the giants. And Caleb always inspires me because it says there that he wholly followed the Lord. He didn't do it half-hearted. He did it fully. And because he wholly followed the Lord, he was wholly victorious. Caleb never wavered. In 45 years of dealing with other people's stuff, he never grumbled. He was never numbered with the skeptics. He was never numbered with the rebels. He was never numbered with those who wanted to return to Egypt. And Alan Redpath wrote this about him. He said that he had a faith that never wavered that it had enabled him to lay hold on a strength that never weakened. The very power of God himself. No human energy could suffice for all the trials of the way. I like what he says there, that he never wavered. Never wavered. Then I look at someone like Elijah who was labeled the troubler of Israel. And the reason why he was labeled that was because he came to King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, who were fully wicked and fully corrupt. And he said, God has pronounced a judgment on Israel that there will not be water, there will not be rain for three and a half years. And so they wanted to kill him. And so he hid, God told him to to come to the brook Cherith and that he would be fed by ravens and he would be fed and he would drink from the brook there. And when we read that story, we think, wow, what a miraculous provision from the Lord. You have bread and water during the drought. This seems like a great setup. But do you know what happens to brooks in a drought? They dry up. I can imagine Elijah sitting there, and as days go by, the brook gets thinner and thinner and thinner. And at some point, I imagine that the brook was stagnant, muddy water. And we know the story of Elijah. He hits the wall. He gets to a point where he, he runs to Mount Carmel, and he complains to God, and he says, God, I'm the only believer left. There is no one else who loves you, no one else who follows you. I am alone, the last person. And God says, Elijah, get up. And this is my own take on it. Quit whining. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've heard that word from the Lord. Quit sniveling. But they, they spur me on. They spur my, my wife and I on. I, I mentioned earlier that we haven't run together since that fateful day. We did periodically. I, asked, I talked to my wife last night, and she mentioned, yeah, I could probably count on one hand the times that we've run together. Um, but for almost 20 years now, we've run a different kind of race. 
together. When Ross asked me to speak, he, he told me to bring one of my faves. Now, he meant something different, but usually when someone tells me that, what that means is bring one of your good sermons. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but pastors recycle sermons. And when they are called to guest speak, they just, you know, they use something that, that worked good at their own church. But I, I don't do that because it just feels stale. So I started praying, Lord, what is it that you'd want me to share? And I've never taught on this passage before. And honestly, I can only think of one time that I've heard this passage taught. But this passage is our life verse. Up in the office at the church, it's written. Uh, a lady from this church also painted a beautiful uh, artwork that hangs above our bed in our room of this passage. Because it's our, it's our life passage I'd been working for a company in San Rafael and I received a, a reward uh, for performance and they, they flew me and my wife out to New Orleans uh, They put us up in the nice hotel and we went to all the nice restaurants and we were part of a couple parades and, uh, and it was just, we had an excursion where we went out and, you know, we're on the Everglades looking at, you know, watching alligators and holding baby alligators and uh, different things like that. But by far, our favorite part of the trip was the last night we went to dinner and they had a, a gentleman there who was a photographer for uh, a project called Dear World. Um, and so what they would do is they would take a picture of a Sharpie written word or a couple words on your arm or on your face or whatever to, to tell your own personal story. So go ahead and, and this is kind of the example. That's uh, Coach K from the Duke Blue Devils. And so he's on his arm is written, pursue moments. This is our picture. This has always been our life verse, and we have been running a race together for almost 20 years now, and we've seen the excitement and the denial and the shock, the isolation, and all of those things. And the ministry at Sozo, the student center that you guys are very much a part of, we've seen the same thing. God has done such an incredible work uh, there that it is, it's hard to communicate and hard to encapsulate what God has done. Uh, last time I shared about a group uh, called The Family, kids that just looked at each other as, as their family and uh, we provided dinners for them on Friday nights. Well, as soon as you know, we said that and we did that for a few weeks, the family kind of just, there was a schism and they, they broke up and they stopped coming to the dinners. But we st still continued to minister to them. And in the same shopping center, um, they, there was kind of a rival group called NMS. Uh, and it stands for No Mercy Shown. 
And I had shared that they had, you know, fought and kind of jumped a couple of the kids from the family. And so we were constantly running out, breaking up fights and, uh, and those sorts of things. Well, now, because of what we've been doing, both NMS and both the family and them, they are now part of Sozo. They come in and we minister to them. The, the, the leader of NMS came in to me the other day and just said, thank you so much for opening this. I can't even believe that you guys do this. I wish there was something like this when I was younger because he was like 21. And um, the kids that we minister to, they're, they're difficult. They come from broken homes and broken families and there was a, a young man that came in on a Friday night, and we close at 10, and oftentimes I, I'm there from 7 in the morning till 10 at night. And so he comes in, and he asks, what time do you close? I said, oh, we close at 10. He goes, okay, I need to charge my phone. I got to sleep in the car tonight. And he just looked downtrodden, and I said, you know, you look like you've had a rough day. Let me know when you're ready for some good news. And in my mind, I'm thinking, please, Lord, don't let him say that. I want to go home. (laughs) And he said to me, I could sure use some good news. And I went, oh. I was like, all right, Lord. And so I gave him the good news. And he said, it's interesting that you told me this. I was just praying and asking God, if you're real, show me a sign. And I said, I said, dude, I'm your sign. (laughs) The next day he got arrested and was put in juvenile hall. But the last words, you know, that he heard from an adult was the gospel. And God has been doing an incredible work there. But whenever God does an incredible work and light begins to shine and begins to disperse the darkness, the darkness pushes back. And so we've seen that. We've had our own kind of heartbreak hill experience, so to speak. Some of the shop owners in the area uh, have not been so thrilled with the kind of kids that have been hanging out. Um, and one of the shop owners got into an argument with some of the girls that were there. And there was a screaming match back and forth in front of the student center. And my wife and I went out and just kind of tried to break it up and got everyone to their own corners and it settled down. And then a couple hours later, my wife went back over to the shop owner to, to apologize and, you know, to kind of share. These are the kind of kids that we're ministering to. And the shop owner cussed out my wife. And, he, and she said, you guys, you guys are messing up the shopping center identifying us with those students. And you know, I don't mind that. Because we're, we're ministering to a group of kids that have been abandoned. So later that 
afternoon, my wife was talking to the group of girls and just explaining that what that shop owner did was wrong. But she also was saying what you guys were doing was also wrong. You know, that you have to understand that you need to respect adults and respect authorities. And one of the girls who was just the day before, just wanting to, to beat up another girl, was sitting there and she said, you're right. I am really sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry that it makes you guys look bad. She goes, I just, I know that I'm working through some stuff and there's some anger within me because just, just a year ago I was sexually assaulted and I just haven't dealt with it. And I could go on for hours of telling you stories of what's taking place, but God is doing this incredible work. And yet where you feel like we're at this place where there's this darkness creeping in and we're just, we're at heartbreak hill, one, one foot at a time. And that's where the second inspiration comes from. Verse two, the writer of Hebrews tells us that when we run the race with endurance, that we are to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. The second inspiration and, and the most important inspiration is for us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And the word there for looking unto, it's the idea of, of a runner coming into a coliseum. And as he comes into the Colosseum, the, the crowd, the ambient noise that's all around him just kind of fades away and he becomes so focused on the finish line. And the idea here is that as we run this race with endurance, that we have these weights, these sins that we're encumbered about, that we are dealing with just our own flesh where it's like I, I, I'm spiritually lethargic, I'm tired, I'm ready to give up. That the writer of Hebrews says in those moments that we are to look unto Jesus, who is the epitome. And he says, he's the example who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. He endured the cross. He endured the beating and the opening and shredding of his back. He endured the beard being pulled out. He endured the hanging on the cross. He endured the, the crown of thorns jammed into his head for the joy that was set before him. You know, it's kind of interesting. The writer of Hebrews says that we are to look unto Jesus to finish the race with endurance, but it's almost like he flips it. And says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and he's looking at us. And he's looking at the kids. And he's saying, run. Let's pray, Lord, we thank you. <laughs> I'll do it again later. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you have washed us and cleansed us by your blood. 
Lord, that you have redeemed us. Lord, that you've saved our lives from destruction and you've crowned us with your loving kindness and your tender mercies. And Lord, this morning we want to offer our lives back to you afresh and anew. Lord, I pray for those here that just are going through a discouraging time and Lord, they've sensed your voice and they've sensed your calling to to run the race that's been set before them. And Lord, they've come up with excuses of why they don't need to or why they shouldn't. And Lord, I pray that you'd strip all of those things away and that they would only be left with this. That That we need to look unto you Lord, you're the one that started our faith. You're the one that's going to finish it. And so, Lord, we give our lives to you. Do what you will. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org. 